HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In The Drink here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is the show that brings you all the things that are delicious to drink and the people who bring them to you. Uh, my name is Joe Campanelli. I'm the host of the show and also the beverage director of Del Anima, Lartuzzi, and Fora, and uh, the recently opened La Picho restaurant uh, down in downtown New York City. Um, I have a, uh, a very special guest here today. I'm really excited. Um, we have on Megan Krigbaum. Megan's the senior editor for Food & Wine magazine. Uh, she's a local Brooklynite, and uh, according to her, uh, her her Twitter profile, she is a, a fan of Bubbles, Baked Alaska, and uh, Surprise Excursion. <laughs> <laughs> so here's uh, Megan, Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So fun to be here. Um, really, really excited to have you on. Uh, I guess Food and Wine Magazine is uh, kind of the most important uh, food and wine magazine uh, out there right <laughs> now. So uh, it's it's really uh, an honor. An honor to have you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your what your role is and, and how you work with uh, with the great Ray Isle at uh, Food and Wine? Yeah, sure. No, I'm so lucky to work with Ray Isle. Um, he's our executive wine editor, um, and he travels the world, and I stay at the office and write wine pairings um, and do a lot of stuff um, more based in New York, hanging out with winemakers that come into town and um, doing tons and tons of tastings in our tasting room. We have a tasting room that's just full of thousands and thousands and thousands of bottles of wine we get um maybe like 12 cases so 150 or so bottles a week that come in unsolicited into our office and so we have to deal with them somehow and i end up tasting a good majority of those wow how many wines a week would you say you're able to taste well the thing is i try to taste no less than 60 bottles a week which is tricky in an eight-hour workday um but then that leaves you know like 90 bottles that are still hanging out just waiting for to be tasted every week. So it's a pretty intense tasting room right now. A little overwhelming. Okay, so 
You're saying you're not traveling the world on a private jet. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, you know, fancy winemakers bringing you to Chateau Yquem and all I of that. Wish. No, I wish. no, <laughs> I, no. They come to us. That's the great part of New York. They're always here. Um, there are always tastings every week. But then winemakers are constantly in our tasting room, so I can meet people from Chile, from Austria, from France, from Italy, all in one week, which is really cool. Yeah, people always ask me at the restaurants like, "How do you find? How do you find the wines? Do you go travel to every vineyard?" <laughs> And I wish that was the case, but it's terribly inefficient. I know. Right? I would wish I can't go to visit. So we, we taste with our distributors every week, and, and that's, that's kind of how. Right. Um, so but I guess what I'm curious about is the, the samples that you get that are delivered to you, um, they, that can't possibly be like the smallest craft producer who makes 1,000 bottles a year. Right. Can it? Well, it's interesting. Sometimes we get them. I mean, sometimes we'll get wines that are all completely allocated from really small wineries mm. in California. And those are really hard to write about because none of our readers can get them and we have millions of readers. Um, and then sometimes we get big brands and then sometimes we call in the smaller producers. So if we're working on a story, um, I just did a story about champagne from the Obe region, very small producers there. Um, I called in bottles from different distributors and importers around the u.s and they were they were apt to give it to you some some were and some said i only get you know three cases of this a year and i can't give any of it up i have to give it to restaurants so Mm -hmm. then we don't get to taste it Um, you know, a lot of people in the in the wine industry talk about the influence of very influential wine journalists, especially people who uh, write very critically about wine. Do you think that there's a, a responsibility, or what is the responsibility of a journalist to when when you're talking about wine? Well, there's certainly a place for wine criticism, um, and I am grateful that I'm not. I'm not that sort of journalist. I think there is so much good wine right now, especially coming to the United States. Like the Our opportunity to drink well every single day is just vast. It's growing and getting better and better. Um, and so I have plenty to write about that's good, and I don't need to write about the bad stuff or criticize any of it. Um, but there's certainly, for a lot of people who are collectors, those are really important. Those scores are really important to them. So. And that's for a different audience, I think. Okay. And you, but your magazine has consciously stayed away from the scores. We do. We do stay away from the scores. We suggest bottles that we really love instead. Yeah. Why, do you think that, that the score, other outside of the critical realm, do you find that scores are something that, that are useful when, when talking about wine? I think, they, I think they give benchmarks and they certainly look at vintages in a, a specific way, like mm. to look at a track record. I don't know. I don't know how much I how much influence they have on me as a wine drinker or on the average wine drinker. But again, for people who are collecting or people who are really concerned about um, rankings, then it's great for them. Yeah, I could could completely see that as being a a useful collecting tool when you want to resell a wine, but... Right, it's great for auctions. For auctions. I was at at the Christie's Mm -hmm. auction for um, Charlie Trotter's big portfolio from his restaurant last week, and... They were constantly talking about what the ratings were for all those bottles that he had, and it seemed really important to the people who were there. So. That's right. They have um, the El Bouilly, uh yeah. auction is coming. At Sotheby's, up. I know, be fun. That's like that's super exciting, especially their their bottles from great producers that were made specifically for El Bouilly, right? That just don't exist anywhere else that are going to be up for sale. So. Right at this Charlie Trotter's one, they were auctioning off six. Beetle glasses that had made, been made just for Trotter, and I don't remember how, exactly how many 
liters they held, but it was some, it almost could have held an entire bottle of wine in one of these glasses. And it went for $10,000 for six of these glasses. That's insane. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. The the glasses that we have at the restaurants are 24 ounces, which, (laughs) which almost holds a a bottle is 25.4 ounces. Um, but the idea is that we, we only fill it up like a quarter of the way. So you have lots of nice swirl room, but right. Yeah, I can't imagine huge. a liter. Right. Where do you, I mean, do you even have a shelf for that? I don't know where it goes. I don't know. <laughs> I guess if you can afford $10,000 worth of glasses, you can buy some so. big shelves too. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> That's enormous. <laughs> so I, I, I'd love to find out a little bit more about how you got into, uh, how you got into wine. When did, when did this start? Was there a bottle that was very influential for you or a life moment or has this been a gradual process? It's been, it's been pretty gradual. I grew up in Michigan um, in a family that, certainly did not drink a lot like they really they would have a bottle of wine occasionally my mom really loves sweet red wines and sweet white wines and we spent my childhood visiting wineries in northern Michigan which at the time weren't nearly as good as they are now and I just remember doing that with them but it wasn't like we had a cellar it wasn't it was not a super important part of their lives so um when I went to college in Holland Michigan I was working at this restaurant called Butch's Dry Dock and Butch who owns the restaurant loves French wine, just a total Francophile, and had a huge wine list, I think like 700 bottles of wines. And so everything that he opened, he was really insistent that everybody try. And it was just this total shocking and revelationary moment for me of like, oh my gosh, there's all this stuff that I don't know anything about. And he started throwing books at me and wine spectator at me, and I just got totally hooked on it and um, knew that I really wanted to do that. So then I went um, to another college in Vermont, and after I graduated from Bennington, I um, I went to California and worked at a winery in Napa just to kind of get a sense of the pacing of what happens with growing a vine and how wine's made and what a tasting room works like and all of that scene. Um, then moved back to New York. So you knew you wanted to be a uh, a wine professional before a journalist, or a journalist first? A journalist first. I've been a writer all my life. I I just I love writing, um, and it was really cool to find something that was so precise to write about, but then also so vast. And I I really I my biggest interest in wine comes from the family winemakers and the places where wine is made and grown. Um, I'm really obsessed with rocks these days, trying to like collect little pieces of soil from all around the world. Cause I just, if I can't be there, I can at least like feel the rock and like see what that looks like. So, um, it's cool. It's really cool. So what, where are some of the more interesting rocks? I, I was hesitant <laughs> to ask this question, but since you're so interested no, in it. <laughs> I love them. I, a couple of years I got to go to Sicily uh-huh. um, for a story, which was really amazing. And constantly in the wine world, we're talking about terroir and talking about volcanic soils. And I, I was on Mount Etna, which is still an active volcano in the northeastern part of Sicily. And the soil there is so insane you can pick up chunks of lava stone that they almost look like um, softballs they're huge pieces of rock and you can see where the volcanoes erupted and taken out the roads or taken out the vineyards or homes or things and it's black and it's thick and it there's only a couple of plants that can grow through that soil and kind of turn it over organically but that takes hundreds and hundreds of years to change so that 
was really impressive to me. And, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I know you've also been to Santorini, haven't you? Oh, I haven't been to Santorini. You haven't? No, you wrote I about Santorini. Santorini so All right. <laughs> That's one of those. See, I, I picture the senior editor of Food and Wine, again, traveling all over the world. I know. But I've read a piece of yours on Santorini. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And Santorini has some really interesting rocks. It's also volcanic soil, but it's a combination of that dark black volcanic ash. And then you have these big, like, uh, pumice stones. Yeah, they look like like and then like a little boulder, but you could throw it at someone and hit them, and it right. wouldn't hurt because it's so light. Because it's airy. so light, <laughs> so weird. It's no. completely fascinating. Yeah, and I I met with a guy um, from Fox Run Winery in the Finger Lakes last week, and he was talking about all the fossils they found because mm. they're basically in a in an old I think he called a Paleolithic delta, and so there are all these weird little fossils that he's found there that have just kind of turned up in the vineyard which is really crazy it's really wow so other other than the the (laughs) physiological influence that something like a black soil versus a white soil do you think that they're that you're able to actually translate flavors of the soil into the wine i'm skeptically trying to figure that out i think i i think it's certainly possible to detect minerality of different levels in in wine um, I think I have to taste a lot more to know if I'm tasting black soil or white soil or slate or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, it's kind of a, a big debate and uh, the, the romantic in me wants right. to say, wants to say, yes, absolutely for sure. Um, but I know that it's, it's, it's hard to be, uh, hard to be proven. Right. Uh, but I, I think that also a lot of it has to deal with the, with the local culture. Um, okay. if you're, it, the the soil is part of the people who who live there, and I think if you're li- living on a volcano and there's eruptions and there's ash flying around, you might get some ash on your grapes, or you might you you might have you might have a, a chimney in your house or whatever it is. You might get some smoking character, right? Right. Just, just like if you're living by the the sea and. Uh, you might get some brininess from yeah, that sea mist, or right eucalyptus. If you're by the eucalyptus tree, you might get a little bit of that oil into your wine. Mm-hmm. All of it. Yeah. Okay, so so we've established that you're not flying all over the world. But if you could <laughs> fly, where would where would you go? Where's your your top wine destination you've never been to? I really want to go to Vienna right now. I'm really attracted to those wines. Um, for the reds and the whites from Austria are really amazing and i think they go so well with food they're just so bright and so fresh and um peppery in both reds and whites and i think they're they're just amazing so i'd really like to go there uh, i'd love to go there too and that's so interesting that, that you say that vienna is uh it's one of the few places where i say which wine region do you want to go to and say <laughs> vienna well, vienna is a, a big city but it's actually a city in the middle of wine wine area of, right. of austria right Right, it looks so places. amazing. I know. Yeah, yeah, we just did a, a, a red wines of Austria producer night at uh, at oh, Anfora. Cool. Who did uh, you have? We had Moritz, yes, uh, and Nittnaus, and oh. it's really great stuff. Yeah, Some really Saint Laurent and Blaufrankish. Right, and those Weigelts that are the, so amazing. Right. Which, happy birthday is Weigelt. It's 90, 90 years since really? Weigelt has been crossed and been made. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so those red wines of Austria, I think, are... are they, it, it was a surprise for me. I, I've liked those producers in the past, but we were able to pour uh, six or seven different ones that were all unique and, and, and truly delicious. Right. They're yeah. sort of in that same vein of... Red wines from northern Italy, I think, too, the Lagrines and the Pinot Neros that come from there and that same really, um, really fresh, really 
acidic, minerally great food wines. I love them. They're so good. They're so good. Um, all right. So we are going to take just a quick break here on In the Drink. Um, we'll be back shortly with Megan Krigbaum, senior editor from Food and Wine. You're listening to Lung by Iggy Dean on the Heritage Radio Network. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. Wow, I'm uh, I'm hungry for some Surrey Farms <laughs> pork. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Uh, anyway, we're back on In the Drink. I'm uh, Joe Campanelli here with Megan Krigbaum, senior wine editor for Food and Wine Magazine. Uh, Megan, now that now that I have pork on my brain, what? Let's do a little. Let's do a little food pairing <laughs> question. <laughs> um, let's do an all pork food pairing. All pork. All right. Let's do that. Let's see. Let's do. What would you What would you pair with a very simple prosciutto, not smoked, just straightforward but good stuff. Fino sherry. I, I think fino sherry. It's so briny and salty too. It cuts right through all that fat. It's delicious. So ah, fino sherry is like that recurring theme on this show. <laughs> Everyone who knows wine, who I like, maybe I like people who like fino sherry. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> it's sherry on the mind right now too. It's, everyone's talking about sherry. Like the new sherry book from Peter Liam. Sherry Fest was just here. It's sherry is hot. Sherry's right hot, and now we have. Uh, Great producer Fernando de Castilla. I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with them. Oh, yeah. They were not imported to the states. It was something that only like Peter Liam would go there and bring a couple of bottles back, and you know, or, or your your enthusiast friend would it, really hard to get. And now finally imported to the states from uh, Bowler Wine. So right. it's really, exciting. really exciting, really good stuff. Okay, what about an American lightly smoked uh, and cured ham? I'm really. Um... I'm really about Grenache these days. I think that, that like that juicy sort of in your face, like a bouillant fruity Grenache goes really well with with sort of the fatty smokiness of of ham. Yes, and uh, would you go with a New World Grenache? 
mm. and an older old Grenache? Um, well, I love I love all Grenache from the the Rhone region, but um, I think a New World Grenache might be kind of nice. Like maybe something from Southern California might be perfect with that. Yes, yeah. I like the I like the Ridge Lightened Springs yeah, Grenache. That's, so good. It's a very the Unti Grenache from from Sonoma. So good. They're so making good. such good stuff. Okay, how about the very American Thanksgiving's on my mind? So the honey baked ham. Honey baked. <laughs> <laughs> Riesling, right? It's like a really, really bright, fresh Riesling, and it wouldn't even need to have. You could do something like a Spätlitzer or something with a little bit of sugar, but I think Riesling's perfect with that fatty, sweet ham. I think that's. I can't elaborate <laughs> on that anymore. <laughs> so uh, so I, 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 this is the the end of the year, right? We have holiday parties coming out. There's always some sort of interesting wine gadget. I'm sure that people send you gadgets all the time. Uh, I'm more of a traditionalist. I really love my like waiter style ten dollar cork pull corkscrew, right. yeah, and a decanter, and that's and that's about it. But I'm sure you come across some pretty cool things. Is there something that you're actually that you're very excited about? We um we get so many of those aerator things in these days, and we've do tried they work? them. They I don't think they do. We have tried them, and I just don't think that they work very well. Um, maybe we need to test some more, or have some older bottles around or something. I don't know. What I've been really excited about, and this is so stupid, um, little sparkling wine caps, so that they and they actually stay on now, so that you can close a bottle of sparkling wine and it keeps all of its fizz between drinks and you don't have to you don't have to worry about it you could keep it overnight but i never leave a bottle of sparkling wine overnight but they're really amazing they're Ooh. so good they just have these little arms that flip over the top and they keep your bottle fizzy it's oh great. that's fantastic that's yeah. so useful yeah it's good that's so useful uh uh the sparkling wine does keep overnight i have done that yeah <laughs> there's that old trick about the spoon i've never tried that does never it work that either oh. no I'm, I'm afraid i don't want to put a metal spoon in my I know. Overnight. Ugh. In your wine. <laughs> yeah. what, what, what wine regions are you ex- uh, particularly excited about right now? Um, I just had a bottle of Wind Gap Trousseau Gris a couple weeks ago, and mm-hmm. I'm really excited about that Petaluma Gap. I'm so curious to see what will come out of there. It's such a small region, so it's probably not going to get huge for us, but I'm really excited about that. Um, I'm really excited about Cava. I love Reventos Cava so much, and they just decided to not be within the Cava DOC anymore. They're going to go and do their own thing now, but I I think that they make beautiful wines um, that can rival a lot of really great sparkling wine regions there. Um, yes, I think that that's really kind of them. huge news, though. Yeah. I mean, they're a, an emblematic, one of the great producers of Cava, and they decided to to stop labeling their wines Cava is probably when like Montevertine started to decide to not make Chianti anymore. I don't know. I don't know if it was as important at the time, but, but yeah, they're really, I think an emblematic producer. We poured the Meta Anfora before. I, I just love those wines. Do you think that's going to have any ramifications on the industry at all? Or do you think the industry is just of Cava is just so big that they're it's like, oh, so big, it might not matter, but it'll certainly make a name for Reventos even more than it already has. I think like a really standalone, excellent producer of Cava wines. I, that rosé, that neat rosé that they make is so good. It's just delicious. It's incredible. Yeah, it's so incredible. Good. So we have Sherry, Cava. <laughs> Let's give us one more. Mm. How about see. a red I think, wine? I think Santa Barbara and their Pinot Noirs are pretty exciting. I, um, I'm trying to, I think California is kind of in this big flux where even in Napa Valley, 
um, producers are looking at organics and biodynamics in a way that they've never thought of before. I think that um, maybe California producers are getting more interested in where they're growing their grapes and what grapes they're growing in different areas, experimenting more with grapes that we haven't seen before, like grapes from the Jura. Um, so random to be bringing grapevines in from the Jura that no one's heard of before and planting them in the Anderson Valley. But um, Wells yeah. Guthrie's doing that with Copain, and I, it's exciting. I think California and is the a Arno Roberts area. Trousseau as yeah, well. They're is doing like that too. One of the most beautiful wines. Gorgeous, gorgeous. It's it's a good time for California wine. I think I think they have an opportunity to make to make something new and revolutionize that. Yeah, absolutely. And that that was that the impetus behind our list at La Picha, actually. I, I Finding those yeah. wines like the Wells Guthrie, the Copain Trousseau, the Arno Roberts, the Wind Gap wines, Lioko, Brock Cellars. There's so many right now who are making these balanced right. balanced wines. Right. It seems like that's happening a little bit in um, Oregon and Washington, too. They seem to be There seem to be some winemakers there who are really excited to try something different. It's exciting. It's really Do good. Do you think that this is kind of the wave of the future? Do you see people's tastes shifting or will there always be both? That's interesting. I live, um, I live in this world where I'm constantly looking for affordable wines because again, our readership is so, um, it's so diverse in that there are new drinkers and drinkers that are wine drinkers that have been drinking for years and know what they like. And, but everyone's looking for a really affordable bottle of wine these days. And it's getting harder and harder to find an affordable bottle of wine from from the United States, certainly, but in general, because things are getting so expensive. So I I hope that also in the spirit of experimentation, we can find a way to make it so that um, everyone has access to these wines and not just the sort of more upper crust or the people with money for that. Yeah, everyone has access to a wine that has integrity and is well-made, isn't right. just... Right, not yeah. just a, a, a big mass-produced wine. Yeah. yeah. Now, it, it would be great if we can... That's the one thing that's missing, I think, between our culture and, and the European culture, where the wine is on the table the same way that you might have bread or olive oil or, or water or anything like right. that. It's just part... It's just a normal part of the meal. But here, it, since most so much wine is so expensive and it's so rare, and a lot of us didn't grow up with it, it seems like such a rare and celebratory right. thing right. that... Uh, that until we can get the prices lower and people feel more comfortable with it, it will always be that that kind of other separate thing. Right, and sort of scary. I mean, every time you take $20 out of your wallet, you do think, like, what am I doing with this $20 right now? Am yeah. I buying a $6 cup of coffee? Am I buying a $15 bottle of wine? And how far is that going to take me? So, um, I think we have to be really conscious of that. So would you, would you agree with the statement that, that European wines in general, offer better values? Right now they do. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, again, I we put a little yellow dot next to the wines, that, or I mean, I'm sorry, a purple dot next to the wines that cost $15 or less in the magazine on our wine table of contents. It's getting harder and harder to find good wines for under $15, even from Europe. The wine prices are just going up. And I, I don't know if that has to do with taxes or, you know, the financial situation that's happening in so much of Europe, but... It's it's kind of a bummer to not be able to have access to that. And I I always think about um, my favorite wine bar in Paris, uh, the Baron Rouge, and they have these huge barrels of wine just sitting there. And you just go over and you fill up your bottle of wine. And 
Um, and it ends up costing you nine euros or something, something like so perfect. And you just take it home and you drink it that night for dinner. And then the next day you take it back and you drink it that night for dinner. And it's just like this great way of thinking about wine and not without having to totally burn through all of your money for the week. So, wow. Really cool. Okay. So if you were to splurge, yes, where, what, where would you splurge on? I think champagne. Mm-hmm. I love champagne so much. I would totally, I mean, if I had infinite money, I would take that and spend it all around i think um the dose known and lepage champagne from the aube is really delicious they make a gorgeous rosé and actually it's not even that expensive so maybe i'd buy two <laughs> <laughs> and is that the aube and champagne is that an area a part of champagne that you're particularly interested in well it's, that's another area that's really kind of hot and newsy right now mm-hmm. because um the wine growers are now finally making their own wine rather than selling all their grapes away. And it's really delicious. So I've been drinking more of that lately. So I guess it's on my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And then another very sad piece of news. Uh, we just, uh, just heard recently that, uh, Mr. John Franco Soldera, uh, was, was vandalized in the middle of the night. He's the, I think the, the greatest producer in Brunello di Montalcino, um, and it, it looks like vandals had came in, come in during the night. And, you know, when you're, when you're in Tuscany, there, there's no fences, right? There's right. no, like, there's no electrical, like, fences or alarm systems. So, so it looks like some guys just came in during the night and emptied out all of his wine from 2007 to 2012. Right. Five years of amazing Brunello. Like, it's heartbreaking. It's awful. It's just a, a, a really awful piece of news. Yeah. Um, but and and it kind of just highlights like the kind of work that a lot of these winemakers have to do. Um, you think about it, you're, like the wine is something that you make all year long. It's not right. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. Right. Even our little winery in even Red Hook Winery that just lost so much of its production from the past three years in the in Hurricane Sandy. I mean, all that work that went into it just kind of vanishes all at once, which is just really so sad. Yeah. So. So, so I, I really uh, appreciate that um, part of what you do as a journalist is kind of celebrate the things you're excited about and not poo-poo the things that, 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 <laughs> that you're not. But just don't. in that context, like the kind of work that, that these winemakers do and the, the winemakers that, that we get excited about are, are people who really do work really hard all year long. And it's a, it's a, a labor of love, uh, but of also of blood, sweat, and tears. And, right. uh, and at the end of the day, it's just a, a ton of work. And um, to to be more of a champion, I think, is very admirable. Yeah. I think so, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to do just a very quick rapid fire before you leave. Uh- i know i mean you get to taste so many wines all the time so it's it's just really exciting for me to to be able to pick your brain um but once in a while we like to do rapid fire here where we give people uh kind of obscure wine tasting scenarios and say what would you what would you taste in this scenario okay okay all right i think i have an idea what it's gonna what the answer is gonna gonna be um it's going to be champagne. First. Okay. You're. <laughs> <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> you just predicted my answer. I predicted your answer. Well. <laughs> okay. So you, you are on a private jet to Vienna. Nice. I like where this <laughs> to is To go going. wine tasting. <laughs> yes. What, what would I drink on a private jet? jet? 
You can't drink Austrian wine, right? Oh, Joe, I would drink champagne. (laughs) (laughs) How can you be at a private drat and not drink champagne? I don't know. All right, I think you're, I think that's fair <laughs> enough. Uh, how about you're eating you're eating pizza at your favorite local Brooklyn haunt? You live in Carroll Gardens, right? I so do. maybe I live at, in at Lucali's, the BYO. Yeah, probably beer. I don't, I don't know. I think beer and pizza is really awesome. I mean, wine and pizza is delicious too. But um, my parents were just in from Michigan. They just brought us a six pack of my favorite beer in the whole world, which is Two Hearted from Bell's Brewery. I would take that. Wow. Yeah. All right, and then uh, you're back. You're back at work. You have a thousand samples. And you're like, I really need to taste through a bunch of these, but I like this one, so I want to taste through that one. <laughs> what, what would you start with? Yeah, what would you start. Um, wow. I think I would go to Northern Italy and start tasting through whites from the Alto Adige. I love Muller Turgau so much, and I would probably start there. That's awesome. <laughs> All right, Megan Craigmount, thank you so much, uh, everyone at home. Uh, please do check out Food and Wine magazine and Thank see you. Megan's coverage. Um, uh, it's it's really some of the best out there, and uh, she's uh, also just a fantastic person. Uh, please tune in as well every Wednesday at 10 a.m. on In the Drink for more on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.